0: No offense, but I really don't care about plants. Now, if there's a Tibetan turnip that will allow me to breathe underwater for an hour, then great. But otherwise... I'll breathe for both of us! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick.
1: And I'm Julia.
0: And today we're talking about Minutes 117 and 118, which begin with Helen and the Mariner eluding gunfire underwater and end with Deacon arriving at Enola's holding cell. We start off this minute with the Mariner explicitly telling Helen, I will breathe for both of us, and she nods and they sink underwater and we cut to a wide shot with Smoker's All over the place, shooting wildly into the water like raiders are wont to do. (laughs) I like in this wide shot how we're able to see all of the smokers on the jet skis that are just hanging around. The smoker that was pulled up into the rigging is still dangling there out in open air. Even though people are probably more focused on the center of the screen where all the gunfire is happening. And I like how you can see off to the left side a larger smoker barge with armor plating floating just out of the action.
1: Yeah, I really like that we get to see an overhead view. First of all, there are a lot of raiders.
0: Mm-hmm. This is not a fight that Helen and the Mariner could win.
1: Nope, it was absolutely the smart thing for them to do. I also like getting an overview of the trimaran. We didn't get a lot of overview shots like this. Most of the gazing at the boat longingly was in silhouette or at a greater distance. And also the water is really pretty. (laughs) (laughs) The water is a really nice color blue.
0: You love an overhead shot of the ocean. I do. It feels a little wrong to see so many smokers crawling over the trimaran like this. They seem like, I don't know, angry bugs. Crawling all over something that bugs do not belong on, like a sandwich. I know I mentioned sandwiches last week. I I don't
1: know. <laughs> they don't mix with water.
0: Right. Bread and water, not a good combo when they're mixed all into one. But no, seriously, it's like ants crawling all over your picnic. They don't belong there. You want them to go away. It's uncomfortable to see so many of them convening on a place that we have spent a lot of time over the course of this movie.
1: Yeah, we have been in this moment before. Every time Max loses his Interceptor, his black-on-black, black, his camel-driven buggy, we feel this. The man and the car are linked. Yeah. You think about Mad Max, you think about the black-on-black. Black. He makes that car his home, it means something to him, and then he loses it. So we have been here before.
0: Yeah, this is the scene where Wes and the toady and the other of the Lord Humungus's goons are trying to steal the gasoline and Max is hiding behind a rock. This is the scene where the war boys have captured Max and are dragging him behind the tow truck so that they can dismantle the black on black. This is (laughs) that scene in Thunderdome where he has to disable the car alarm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thunderdome is such a goofy movie. I love it. (laughs) But we very quickly cut underwater. And as I mentioned last week, bullets do not travel very far under the surface. And so Helen and the Mariner are very quickly able to get to a safe distance. And Helen, because she is a human, quickly runs out of breath and tries to swim for the surface. But the Mariner stops her. He pulls her down and gets her right face to face. He puts his hands on both sides of her head and he starts breathing for her. And I want to duck into the book here.
1: Okay. You warned me ahead of time I wasn't going to like this. (laughs)
0: Okay, <laughs> I'm drowning, she thought Heaven help me, I'm drowning The mariner stopped, treading water and drew Helen to him It was as if he were kissing her but it was a kiss of life as he shared air with her Then he held her shoulders as they swayed together underwater and his fish buggy eyes sought to reassure her Calmed, she allowed him to loop his arm around her waist and they went swimming away together deep under the water kicking in tandem like a fish school of two pausing now and then for the Mariner to share his air with her in survival kisses. Okay. (laughs) I told you you wouldn't like what the book calls them.
1: Survival kisses?
0: Survival kisses.
1: (laughs) Of all the things that you could call it. Like the breath of life, maybe? What? Survival kisses? Survival kisses. It's so stupid. (laughs) so dumb. I mean, (laughs) I know what they're trying to do with this scene. They're trying to have a romantic physical moment.
0: Because it is very intimate.
1: It is. It's very intimate. And it just doesn't work for me for a couple of reasons. For one, it doesn't make any sense.
0: (laughs) So you're first bothered by the scientific inaccuracy of it all.
1: Yes, I am. My very limited knowledge of how gills work is that inside the gills are little tubes. They might sometimes be described as feathery and oxygenated water passes over them and they pull oxygen and other needed blood things out of the water and then pump it into blood. And there you have oxygenated blood and you can function. Between the two of them, there is only so much air to pass back and forth. So for one, there are bubbles, which means they are losing air, Mm -hmm. which means there is no longer enough air to pass through their circulatory systems between the two of them. Second of all, his air doesn't get oxygenated by his gills. His blood gets oxygenated by his gills. His air has nothing to do with it. So he does seem to have like a double system where when he is breathing air, The air is going through his lungs and the alveoli, and there is, you know, the stuff's getting pulled from the air, and then it gets sent back out. So his air is not being oxygenated by his gills.
0: Right. Students of anatomy will remember that when you breathe in, the air enters your lungs, and it goes down your bronchial tubes to bronchioles, at the end of which are air sacs or alveoli. Those alveoli, they fill with oxygen, and there is a gas exchange. Blood pulls oxygen from the sac and puts carbon dioxide into the sac for expulsion when you breathe out. That's the human side of things. When you go over to the fish side of things, there's no air sac that fills. The fish opens its mouth, water goes in, the water goes past the gills, and the gills are essentially... Not even alveoli, they are the capillaries on the alveoli that pull oxygen straight out of the water, just like you said. So it's not like he's letting the water go past his gills and extracting little bubbles of air that he can store up in his lungs to push into Helen. That's not how
1: gills work. (laughs) I'm totally on board for this mythical creature who has both systems. Fine. I'm cool with that. But those systems are not compatible with her system in this underwater setting. So
0: Mm. It also would not work if he were to blow oxygenated blood into her mouth. That would be incredibly gruesome and look (laughs) terrible. And (laughs) I really regret saying it out loud now that I think of it. The important thing is he's just not pulling air out of the water. This shouldn't work ever. Yep. In any regard, and it's not in the 1991 Raider script because in the Raider script, he's not a mutant.
1: Okay, I have one more thing about this that I don't like. When Helen starts to feel the need for air, she wants to go back up, and she's starting to head up, and he pulls her, and she fights him for a moment. Her mouth is open, meaning her mouth is full of seawater. He immediately kisses her, and they start breathing together. Where did that seawater go? had to go somewhere. Mm. It just disappeared. It didn't really because they're not actually breathing together.
0: <laughs> as ridiculous as the idea is, I appreciate it because there is an established fantasy of this world that him being a mutant is carte blanche to do basically whatever he wants, including this type of breathing. Also, it allows Helen and the Mariner to have... A level of intimacy that they have not had in this movie before and not only that it's an opportunity for the mariner to keep her alive with no clear advantage to him letting helen die at this point or letting the smokers take helen at this point would make the mariner's life so much easier and yet he's going through the effort To keep Helen alive. Something that she has no hope of doing on her own anyway.
1: Saving Helen right now neither costs him anything nor gains him anything. He's just doing it because she's a person. And as kind of explained better in the book, his humanity recognizes her humanity.
0: He has marked her as one of those humans that is worth saving that is not worthy of slaughter. Right. Meanwhile, up on the surface, the smokers have wasted zero time in spreading gasoline all over the boat and setting it aflame. Meanwhile, Enola is on a smoker ship next to the deacon who is enjoying his magazine that he just found. And Enola is thrashing around, shouting for Helen to come save her. Because what else is she going to do at this point?
1: Right. I appreciate that the deacon is kind of casual about this now. Mm Mm-hmm. He seems very relaxed on the back of the boat. Yeah.
0: He has given responsibility for holding on to Enola to someone else, and so he can sit back and relax. It's One of the reasons I like the deacon. <laughs> he takes time for him. He doesn't have to be on all the time. Yeah. When we cut back underwater, Helen is floating there with the mariner, and she takes a moment to run her fingers like by his head to call attention to the gills moving around. It kind of feels like that scene in Superman the movie where he's flying around with Lois Lane and she's got this thought poem. We hear it in voiceover, but it's not something that Margot Kidder says out loud. I don't know the exact wording of it, and it's been a while since I've watched it. But I get this idea of like, oh, this man is magic. I'm suddenly very intrigued by him.
1: (laughs) I agree. I think that, yes, that's what's trying to be communicated to us is that she is seeing him in a new light
0: i had to look up lois's thing because i couldn't just let it go so as superman is flying lois around this voiceover comes on that margot kidder is reading and she says can you read my mind do
1: you know what it is that you do to me I don't know who you are. Just a friend from another star. Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. Will you look at me, quivering? Quivering. Like a little girl, shivering. You can see right through me. Can you read my mind? Can you picture the things I'm thinking of? Wondering why you are. All the wonderful things you are. in the sky. You and I could belong to each other. If you need a friend, I'm the one to fly to. If you need to be loved, here I am.
0: Read my mind. And it is so out of the blue and strange in the context of Superman. I am so glad they don't do anything like that here in Waterworld with oh some sort of gosh. internal monologue from Helen.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Now, you've seen Superman the movie, right?
1: Oh, forever ago. Okay. Yeah.
0: So it's not brand new to you.
1: No, but it feels brand new.
0: You probably forgot about it like most people do when they sit down to watch Superman the movie after (laughs) however long of not watching it.
1: Yeah, that's quite something. And I definitely see the parallels between that and this scene. There does seem to be a realization for Helen of this man before her who is giving her survival kisses. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. And a bit of an awakening. Mm -hmm.
0: It's one of those situations where she's Thinking to herself, God, I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. Right. As far as the visuals are concerned, I really like how it looks when Helen and the Mariner are floating just under the surface and you've got the jet skis kicking up wake right over them. They seem very separated from it all. Like the action is still happening up on the surface. Stuff is on fire, guys are moving around, and yet they are a world apart even if they are not that far away.
1: There's a tranquility to them underwater. And it's very captivating. The first few times that I watched this clip through for preparing, I didn't even notice that there was a jet ski doing donuts right above them. I didn't even notice because your eyes are on them. And the way that they are just floating mid-water, their legs are kicking, but not even really that much. Their hair is floating in the water, and it's a very lovely composition.
0: Definitely one of my favorite shots in the movie, even if it is ridiculous to think of. (laughs) Something that's different in the book is how they don't stay in one spot. I mentioned earlier that the Mariner looped his arm around Helen and they started kicking. It continues. It was dark down there and cold, but after a while she felt warm. She felt close to this creature. This man. Perhaps an hour later, they surfaced far away from the trimaran. It was only a dot, barely visible on the horizon. But they could see the telltale trail of smoke curling like an awful question mark into the sky. They could see, too, the smoker boats pulling away in triumph. As they treaded water on the surface, Helen shuddered to think of Enola's fate. Had they killed the child and stripped the skin from her back to make a more portable map? Or was she merely in the ruthless grasp of that insane one-eyed smoker chieftain? We have to go back, Helen said. I have to know. The mariner nodded, bobbing next to her. We can start now. We'll be there by sunset.
1: I really appreciate that they come out and say that they were down there for an hour. Time absolutely passes based on the destruction level of the boat. That didn't happen in five minutes. That took a while.
0: With how little is left of the trimaran, this underwater hiding scene was definitely not in real time. I probably would have appreciated them cutting away to something else, showing a scene elsewhere, but it may or may not have been narratively sound.
1: I know what you mean, though. Cutting away to something else to show the passage of time. Although this movie doesn't really seem too concerned with cutting scenes and the passage of time. (laughs) Or not.
0: Yeah. So Helen and the mariner pop to the surface, and they swim back to the trimaran. They climb up onto the burned wreckage and the mariner looks at everything around him and he simply says my boat
1: yeah it's a little sad yeah.
0: we know that this boat is his only friend the only one that won't slit his throat when he's trying to sleep or stab him in the back
1: right we specifically had a scene where we got to learn how much this boat means to him
0: i'm not quite sure what direction i would have for kevin costner with the delivery of this line. But as I watch it, all I can really say is that it feels kind of dopey the way he says it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Kevin Costner.
0: (laughs) He can only do so much.
1: Yeah. He He is
0: only only one man.
1: Yeah, he can only do so much. (laughs) It's not like he only does Doofy, but this character specifically feels like he really just shouldn't talk out loud. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's more like he's so unaccustomed to talking out loud. That he's not that good at it. We're going to go with that one.
0: I appreciate how the mariner says my boat and Helen very quickly says Enola because Enola's gone. And that's a very troubling thing. It's especially troubling when Helen takes a few steps and finds a patch of melted wax, leftover crayons from the box that Enola was drawing from as a reminder that she is gone.
1: I love this pool of melted crayons and that it's all very colorful. I think that's a great detail and a great way to symbolize Enola. We have this hunk of burned out metal that is gray and smoke and then we have this little pool of bright color.
0: This little splash of color amidst all of this black and char. The scene in the book sticks with Helen and the Mariner, it does not cut away to the D's yet. There is more between them that we'll actually see in later weeks. Helen very specifically asks the Mariner to check below deck shortly after climbing up onto the boat because she wants to know if the Smokers killed Enola, cut the skin off her back, and left her behind.
1: Oh, that's gruesome! Yeah.
0: She can't bring herself to say, look for the body. She kind of trails off in the text. Here in the movie... We leave them behind as they sit there trying to figure out what to do. Helen is definitely at a loss. The Mariner seems to switch very quickly into salvage-what-you-can mode.
1: Right. He is a drifter. This is what he does. He salvages. And Helen is not without her value and her skills. This isn't really it, though.
0: She's no MacGyver. Right. Meanwhile, on the Ds... The deacon is riding in his deacon mobile, smashes through a bunch of trash cans, because he has arrived at the holding cells, and he is almost immediately accosted by a group of children who want to get cigarettes off of him, because, of course.
1: This place seems worse than it was before. It seems more trashy, it seems more dirty and grimy. I don't know if it's because we haven't been here in so long, but... Mm. Man, this place is horrible.
0: Well, the reason it seems dirtier is because the last time we were on the D's, we were in the Deacon's private stateroom.
1: Ah, Very true. Very true. And now we're in the prisoner area.
0: Yeah, we are deep in the bowels. And so they have all of these trash cans. And it's wild to think that there is trash in general that they haven't figured out some way to reuse and recycle all of this raw material that they have lying around.
1: Yeah, I don't really get it.
0: There are so many things that they could trade to atollers that would be very valuable. At the very beginning of the shot, there is a big old water bottle just sitting on the ground that could very easily be traded to an atoll. Hey, here's a plastic water bottle. You can hold water in it. That's very useful. Let's trade. But the smokers don't trade. They pillage. The deacon, of course, is thinking about nothing else except dry land. He says, I can't wait to get this thing out on some pavement, build some highways and some freeways. And as the children come up asking for cigarettes, he starts handing them out, saying, there you go, cuz, there you go, cuz, be careful now. You break them, you can't use them.
1: That's funny, because it's not true. <laughs> I mean, if you insist on having the filter on there, yeah. Yeah. You can smoke a cigarette without the filter. Right. The deacon, he kind of gives himself away in this moment when he's like, I can't wait to build highways and freeways. These are token words. He doesn't know what they mean.
0: Right. He knows the idea of them because he's seen them in videos.
1: And he doesn't know what he's talking about. He just likes to use words. We were guests on American Graffiti song by song the Mm -hmm. other day. It was the scene where Terry the Toad is cruising in the not his car and he picks up Debbie. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we talked about is that he's using language and doing things that he obviously doesn't know what he's doing. He hears other people use them that are cooler than him. So he does his best to incorporate them into his vocabulary. It's the same thing here with the Deacon. He has heard these words someplace before and so they sound great. He's going to use them. He does relate them to a car so he's not that far off.
0: He's got a dictionary of words and phrases in his mind that he considers to be excellent so he's going to pull them out in this situation. A, because he feels like his dream is close to coming true but also because he's the boss. He gets to... Make declarations like this. Like, yeah, we're going to build highways and freeways. And I'm like, you're going to do nothing of the sort. You don't have rebar and cement and engineers and heavy construction equipment. The best he can possibly hope to make is a dirt road.
1: This car doesn't really run, does it? It's mostly just pushed around, right?
0: I'm pretty sure it's mostly just pushed around. Like, It probably has a motor in it, but... It's got no rubber on those wheels. It's just rims. It's probably grinding along the floor most of the time anyway, more yeah. than getting any actual real traction.
1: Oh, that car is awful.
0: You'd be better off making a new car out of wood. Yeah. The last image we see this week is a close-up of Enola in her cell, waiting for something to happen. And we'll get to see what is to become of her in next week's episode. So, come on back. We'll see the smoker doctor prescribe some truth serum, the deacon will play the good cop, and Enola will give us a lesson on proper population control. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
1: Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures.
0: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com.
1: Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute.
1: And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone.
0: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash
1: Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 59. We'll see you next time.